Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. How are we doing? All good? Um, you're going to have to put up with a slightly congested uh, version of me today. Um, but I told myself, if I can deliver the message in this state, you can certainly listen to it. So, <clears throat> Someone once told me you should never put more than three quotes into a sermon. You know, really just no more than two or three really well-placed quotes. But I'm going to completely break that rule today and start the sermon with three separate quotes. But I think you'll see what I'm, I'm trying to do. So... Uh, this is the penultimate week of the Way of Wisdom series. Have you enjoyed the, the series on wisdom so far? I think it's been a really great topic to, to kick the year off with. And so uh, next week, Jill is going to be finishing the series looking at our speech, um, which will be great. So today we're talking about contentment. And uh, I'm going to use one particular book from the wisdom literature today. So here we go. Here's, your, here's the, the three, three quotes. <clears throat> Almost 50 years ago, to the day, the 1st of March, 1973, Pink Floyd released one of the greatest albums of all time, both commercially and creatively considered one of the greatest pieces of music ever made. Does anybody know what the album's called? The Dark Side of the Moon. Listen to some of these lyrics from the song Time on that album. And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. A few decades earlier, that's all the Pink Floyd I've got for you, sorry. I'll try and get comfortably numb into a set list at some point. Um, a few decades before that, the great poet T.S. Eliot wrote the following passage in his poem, Burnt Norton. Distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. Final one. In the 18th century, Dr. Samuel Johnson, in what has been described as one of the greatest feats in the history of scholarship, finished his exhaustive dictionary of the English language, of which we have all benefited in ways that we could not even know about. Took him years and years of work, um, every single word in the English language. Yet in the preface to this dictionary, he had this to say, I saw that one inquiry only gave occasion to another, that book referred to book, and that to search was not always to find, and to find was not always to be informed, and that thus to pursue perfection was to chase the sun. These are just three examples among literally hundreds that I could have pulled out from great thinkers, musicians, poets, artists from across the centuries that prove that every generation is preoccupied with the same questions, the meaning of life, the unstoppable march of time, the mundanity of much of living, the pursuit of joy, and of course, the unavoidable certainty of death. 
And all three of these examples have the fingerprint of one particular book of the Bible on them. Does anybody have an idea what book that might be? Ecclesiastes. Didn't help that I said last week that I was going to speak on Ecclesiastes. Listen to this excerpt from the opening poem of Ecclesiastes, and I'd encourage you maybe to close your eyes as I read this and try and really get into the world that the, the author is creating here. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nice light stuff, isn't it? But do you hear the echoes of Ecclesiastes in all of the three examples that I opened with? Now, I know T.S. Eliot and Samuel Johnson were you know, explicitly referencing Ecclesiastes. They were both fascinated by the book. Pink Floyd, I cannot say. I don't know if they were aware of the words of Ecclesiastes or not, but it certainly sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? Ecclesiastes is one of the three wisdom books of the Old Testament Proverbs, which we've spent a lot of time in in the past few weeks, and Job, and then Ecclesiastes are those three books. And this one is a literary masterpiece. It contains some of the most memorable, poignant passages in all of Scripture. You all know the poem, I'm sure, from Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There is a time to kill and to heal. And so it goes on. This book is a deep, brooding monologue on these great questions of life on earth or life under the sun, to use the phrase that comes up in Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes is also an outlier. I've heard it described as the most problematic book of the Bible. I think that's probably why I like it so much. I like to solve problems. It doesn't contain much at all of what we might consider to be orthodox belief. It doesn't talk about the covenant. It doesn't talk about Israel. It doesn't talk about Yahweh. It doesn't have sort of prophetic um, poetry and imagery about a Messiah that will come and make everything right. It contains absolutely none of that. And so um, it's kind of like it pushes right against much of what the Old Testament is trying to paint. Along with Job, Job also is is a bit like this in some ways, but um, Ecclesiastes is complicated enough for one sermon. And then, so it's, it's an outlier within the biblical canon as a whole, but it's also a little unusual within just the wisdom books. So Proverbs, as we've been looking the past few weeks, um, it's not black and white, but Proverbs gives us general guidelines on the way that things work in God's world. The righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be punished, right? That's kind of, this is how things generally work. If you work hard, you will be rewarded, And if you don't, you won't. It's the way that things generally work. But we all know that there are many, many, many exceptions 
to those rules. And so where Proverbs has commended the pursuit of wisdom and it personifies it as lady wisdom, you know, long life is in her right hand. Those who find her will be blessed. It actively encourages us to seek out wisdom. Ecclesiastes cuts completely across that. And it says wisdom is better than folly, but wisdom is still meaningless. And we're going to talk about that word meaningless shortly. If Proverbs has taken us to train at the wisdom gym, it's so that we're strong for the fight with Ecclesiastes. But despite this unorthodox approach, and despite the fact that it's quite dark and despairing, do you know why Ecclesiastes has resonated so deeply with people throughout the century since it was written? Because it's true. <laughs> it contains so much profound truth. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. Now, why would he say that? Well, Ecclesiastes gives voice to the anguished doubt that we all feel at times. We all have moments, you know, we've just prayed into that for some people, these moments where we are in the lowlands and life doesn't make sense, it doesn't add up. And sometimes it's not necessarily really dramatic stuff. It can just be the mundanity of life, right? That just causes us to ask questions like, what is the, po <laughs> what is the point of this? I'm bored or whatever it might be. I heard one anecdote about um, people who were rehabilitating veterans after the Vietnam War and part of you know, the, the program that they were in had chapel sessions, you know, worship and, and teaching. And, and these uh, veterans really, really struggled and couldn't listen to much of it, would walk out, all, all kinds of stuff. But over time, they realized that the book of Ecclesiastes was the one part of scripture that they would happily sit and listen to because they, they identified something within it that connected with them. Have I convinced you yet that Ecclesiastes is worth exploring? Yes. <clears throat> out of interest, because somebody said this a few weeks ago at the evening service. Is anybody's favorite book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes? A few people. Yes, it's an interesting one. It's kind of, I, I suspect it's a little bit like Revelation. You either love it or the chances are you're like, ooh, don't know. Might just skip that one out. Um, so what, before I, I hone in on what I'd really like to share with you today, I want to just give you a couple of helpful things that I think as you go away and read Ecclesiastes from start to finish this week, which you're obviously going to do now, um, a couple of helpful things that I think as you come to it will enrich your experience. Um, I'm going to go quickly here because this isn't, this isn't mission critical, this part. Now, who wrote Ecclesiastes? The book opens by saying, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, who's the son of David? Solomon. But Ecclesiastes almost certainly was not written by Solomon. The word Ecclesiastes is the Greek approximation of the Hebrew word, koheleth. And that word means the teacher, the gatherer, the collector, something along those lines, the gatherer of people. And so therefore you see the word ecclesi you know, ecclesial, like gathering the church. And uh, there's some very nerdy reasons as to why this almost definitely couldn't have been Solomon. I'd be very happy to explain to anyone who's willing to listen to it after the service. Um, I, I'm certain it wasn't Solomon personally. So why would it open with these words, the son of David, king in Jerusalem? Well, what's happening here is that the author, who was obviously a very wise person and probably um, lived in the upper echelons of society, they're doing what's called a royal fiction. They're taking on the mantle of being a king and they're not explicitly saying Solomon, but they're alluding to it, who of course Solomon was the what? The wisest man in the world. 
He's doing this in order to make his point. So if you read Ecclesiastes chapter two, it's essentially this list of all these amazing things that this person has been able to do because they're the king rich and they have access to all of this stuff. So the list is something like, I have built mansions, gardens, palaces. I've had male and female servants. I've had singers and musicians. I've had a harem. I've had gold and silver. I've had wisdom. Essentially, I've had literally everything that people think will make them happy in life. And what does he finish that part by saying? I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And the second thing that I think is really helpful for you as you go to Ecclesiastes is this word, meaningless. This is the famous refrain of the book, everything is meaningless. Now that word is one more Hebrew word, hevel. It's got a B in the middle, but it's pronounced like a V. It's very similar to the word able, as in Cain and Abel. And the literal meaning of this word is vapor or mist. One translation is mere breath. Imagine a cold morning when you breathe out and you see your breath and it's gone before you can do anything with it. The metaphorical meaning, therefore, is that life is elusive or fleeting or ephemeral. And I actually think meaningless is not the best way to translate it because meaningless means something is void of meaning altogether. I think what the author is trying to convey to us is that he's done all of this stuff, he's experienced all of these things, and I have decided that life is just really difficult to comprehend. It's hard to grasp. You can see it, right, but you can't grab hold of it. It's impossible to contain nothing we do ultimately can be completely and utterly reduced to rules or be understood. Life is hevel, right? A little more subtle than just meaningless. Now, there are many great lessons that I think we can learn from the teacher. Um, he has much to say about a whole host of subjects. But one of the things that I think is the most incisive about his writing, and this really, I remember this striking me a couple of years ago, is the way that he exposes what I'm going to call the lie of more. Now, what do I mean by the lie of more? Listen to this passage from Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hevel. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Or another similar theme from the passage I read out to you earlier. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. And one more, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Better is one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and chasing after the wind. Does this ancient wisdom sound like it was written 22 centuries ago? It sounds to me like it could have been written this morning. Long before this 
insanely consumerist age that we find ourselves living in, the lie of more has been a problem that humanity has not been able to overcome. And how much more difficult is it to see past this lie in our day, right? Saturated by advertising, plugged into screens that continually tell us what it is that we need to be truly happy and truly content. The teacher's observations seem to me eerily prescient. He just cuts through so much of what we preoccupy ourselves with, chasing after wealth and possessions, bigger property, success, greatness, sexual gratification, more followers, whatever it is, more, more, more. He looks at all of this and he declares it to be meaningless, chasing after the wind. The lie of more, as I've thought about it this week, it's so insidious that I actually think we don't even realize sometimes when we are operating in it. We see it in young kids, right? From an early age, they want more of something, chocolate ice cream or uh, another episode of Bluey in, the, in my house. And they're perfectly willing to ruin everybody else's fun in order to have more of the thing that they think will satisfy them. And we see it right up to the international stage between countries when the lie of more causes untold suffering to millions of people. We see it in our relationships, right? Do you know that feeling? Um, have you ever been speaking to someone and you're aware that they're not giving you their full attention because they're conscious of who else might be coming into the room? Have you ever been left high and dry because someone more popular <laughs> or, or uh, someone that they want to talk to leaves you um, sort of in the dust because they want to go and speak to someone else? The inability to focus on the person that's in front of you because you're thinking about more. I can get more of this from somebody else. Where do we give in to the lie of more in our marriages? We live in a, an area of incredibly high rates of divorce and adultery. Are we looking for contentment outside of our marriages? Where are we giving in to this lie of more? And that's the question I'm asking you. What does the lie of more look like in your life? As I was talking to Andrea about this over dinner last night, and um, you might be picturing a sort of calm, candlelit, clean table and in reality there's like that kinetic sand stuff spilled everywhere there's trucks and diggers Xander's running around in his nappy just yelling about diggers or something so I think this is how the conversation went I'm not 100% certain but as we were just talking about this last night I kind of named what it is for me the lie of more in my life is that I think learning more understanding more knowing more Buying more books is what will give me contentment and satisfaction. I am always chasing that, always. It's always in the back of my mind. I can't get into bed at night if I haven't learned something in the day. Now, hear me on this. I'm not here to rain on everybody's parade. Some of this stuff is, is not inherently bad. What I'm talking about here is 
is the place that we're giving it in our lives, the priority that we're giving on it, okay? So for me, the lie of more is, is that whole area. I think, you know, and it's subconscious, right? I'm not buying the book going like, I'll be happy when I get this new commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. I will get a temporary hit of, of, uh, of whatever that good, good thing in your, the good chemical is. That's the lie of more for me. What does the lie of more look like for you? Andrea is one of those sort of annoyingly contented people who doesn't need loads of things in order to actually just be quite happy. Uh, so I was like, what's the lie of more for you? And she looked at me for a minute and she went, I think probably just a bit more sleep, to be honest, would be... Um... <laughs> the instinct for that more, the instinct for genuine contentment is not wrong. In fact, it's how we are designed. We all want to be content, to have our head hit the pillow at night and to feel like our heart is full, to feel satisfied. And the teacher himself recognizes this in chapter three with one of the most beautiful phrases. God has put eternity in the human heart. He's set eternity in the hearts of man. We are built for more. There is a longing in us for the eternal. It's just not the kind of more that we often think it is. And some of us know where that real more is, but we still look in the wrong places anyway. This is one of the great battles of being a Christian. We are built for more. And the teacher knew where that true contentment lay, despite his pessimism and, let's be honest, slightly depressing outlook on life. The teacher also includes what we might call joy passages. So six or seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have these passages where the tone suddenly changes. Now, do you know the phrase, eat, drink, and be? That's from the book of Ecclesiastes, from the King James translation. That's how it entered our, our culture as a phrase. It's from this book. So it's, again, isn't that a juxtaposition? You have this, like people think of it as like the dark, depressing book of the Bible, and yet it's also where that phrase comes from. How interesting is that? And so six or seven times, the tone changes, he makes his intense observations. I've done all of these things. I've thought about this. I've thought about this. And I've decided that it's Hevel. So I've decided there is nothing better for you to do than to enjoy your life, to find contentment. He names some things. He talks about eating and drinking, the simple necessities of everyday life. Enjoy doing good deeds is one of the things that he says. Enjoy life with your wife. Presumably he was married, but I think it would be fair to approximate that and just say, enjoy those closest to you. And he recognizes explicitly that these things are a gift from God. It takes time to appreciate those things. Those are the things, right, that we often overlook in our pursuit of more. We wake up in the morning and we are automatically on some level thinking about more, 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 whatever that looks like for you. And it will look, as many people as there are in the room, it will look different. So the teacher's message is that these everyday simple things are a gift from God, accept the gift. As I've thought 
a little bit more about this, I think I've decided that true contentment isn't in the gifts as such, it's in the ability to enjoy them. Some of the wealthiest, most successful people in the world are some of the unhappiest. Let's not call it a blessing just because they have lots of stuff or lots of uh, you know, popularity, whatever it looks like. If that is a prison to them, the ability to appropriately enjoy the things that God has given us, that's where true contentment lies. Listen to this uh, excerpt from John Wesley's diary. I began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes. Never before had I so clear a sight, either of its meaning or beauties, all tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness outside of God. There is no happiness outside of God. You will not find contentment in 2023 outside of the things of God. It's only in him and in our ability to truly enjoy the gifts that he has given us that we will find contentment. Ecclesiastes is one of the books of the Old Testament that's not explicitly quoted in the New Testament, sometimes why it can be overlooked. But I think the spirit of the teacher's thought is alive and well. Listen to this passage from the hand of Paul. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Distracted from distraction by distraction. Do you ever feel like the complexity of just running your life in the modern world makes it really difficult to enjoy the presence of God and the simple gifts that he has given you? I feel like that. We have so many things to do. And, and remember that, you know, the chances are if you're sitting here today, we are, you know, among the wealthiest people who have ever lived on the face of the planet. You could substitute wealth for technology, whatever you want to do. Just the sheer complexity of running our everyday lives, all the stuff that we have now, all the things to look after, all the things that need their insurance renewed every year, whatever it is. We get so distracted and we become unable to just enjoy the simple gifts that God has given us. His presence in a time of prayer in the morning, the coffee or the, the food that we eat, each day, the people around us, the friends, the family, colleagues, whatever it might be that he has placed in our lives. We don't realize that we pierce ourselves with many griefs in our pursuit of more, 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 running around trying to catch the sun to go back to Pink Floyd.
What does the lie of more look like in your life? Got a little bit of time, so we don't need to rush. Where are you chasing after the wind? Driving onwards on an empty tank because you just don't know how to stop. Chasing whatever it is. Which gifts from the hand of God are you overlooking every day because you're too distracted, (laughs) too busy, too whatever it is to be still and to appreciate those things better is one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. And again, hear me on this. Life is busy and Ecclesiastes commends hard work. This is not me inviting you to sort of sit in your chair all week and do nothing. We can't avoid the fact that, you know, life, life is going to come at us and be busy. It's about our posture within that. That's what I'm talking about here. Let's close our eyes together. And one more time, as we just have a little bit of silence together, I'm going to ask you, what does the lie of more look like in your life at the moment? Father, our hearts will always be restless until they rest in you. We acknowledge today, God, that there is no true contentment to be found outside of you. Where we are chasing the wind, Lord, trying to catch the sun, whatever that looks like for each one of us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to name it, to stare at it full in the face, and to say, no, thank you. Better is one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and chasing after the wind. And Lord, we pray that we would learn to be a people who know how to give you thanks for the simple gifts that you give us, which will often be the things that are just in our everyday lives already, under our noses. May we recognize them. May we always be thankful for them. May we learn what it means to be content with the gifts that you give us.